Remember this portion of the story of God as it's written in the book that we love from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter 2, verse 7. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God created his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is the word of the Lord. If you would turn in your, your Bibles to Genesis, easy one to find, just inside, end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. As I said last week, this book was written for a specific purpose to a specific people. It, it has something to say across time, across cultures. It says something to us, but it was written with a certain group of people in mind who had certain expectations. The first readers of the Genesis account, or those who first heard it when it was read to them, would be comparing it not to the available scientific evidence regarding the beginning of all things, but to the existing ancient Near Eastern creation accounts and the myths that they were familiar with. One of the most popular and pervasive themes in these myths, these creation accounts, uh, was that man, that humankind was created as a lackey or servant for the gods to till the soil and to produce food for them. But the Genesis account reveals that the only God, Elohim, created both humankind 
and he created an abundance of food for them. It is true that we were created to serve God, but it was to serve him by ruling with him, obeying commands and honoring boundaries established by his goodness and his love for us and his love for the whole of creation. All of this was purposed not to make us cringed before God in fear of his unpredictable moodiness, which was the message of many of the myths of that time, but to find joy, to know where it's at, that our joy is in him, to walk with him and to share in God's creative work with him. We were to be part of the continued ordering of the chaos and the making of creation fruitful. That was our intent. That We were to share in the family business with God. There was a special link between man and creator from the very outset, from the very beginning. Genesis tells us that the heart and soul of our special link with God is attributed to a special condition of our creation. It's in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. What is this condition? Whole volumes of armies of theologians have been employed writing books and articles about this subject. What is the image of God? Is it something we do? Is it something we have? Is it something that we are? What we can tell from this, from this account, is that whatever it is, it is what differentiates us from the rest of creation. It's the differentiating factor between humankind and the beasts. It meant a special family tie between our God and us. As God goes on uh, through Moses, the prophet, to write all of this information down, we see that when God created us, he created us to do some things and to be some things. And all of that seems to be part of what it is to be the image of God. Now, there is no definitive rule. There's no place in the scripture that defines what it means to be in the image of God. So everybody who takes a stab at this is doing just that. It's, uh, these are my thoughts as best as I can see, and maybe you'll agree with some of them, maybe not. But first of all, I think part of the image of God is in the phrase, let them rule. The image of God in the ancient Near East, an image was set up every time a king took up uh, or, or uh, um, added a territory to his kingdom. A stella or image would be set up of that king. It may or may not look like that king, but it would represent that king. And that image would say that this king rules 
here. And so this piece of scripture is building on that, that this is God saying that this, he is connected with this creation and that it is his. Let them rule. It's a, it's, a, it's a sign of sovereignty. We are part of God's rulership within creation. Verse 26, uh, chapter 1. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There are two immediate tasks that God established for the image bearers to join him in doing as sovereign. The first task in Genesis 2, verse 5, and then down to 15, which we didn't read this morning, it says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no human being, no man, to cultivate the ground. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, and to keep it. God's intention was to provide for all of the lower creatures as well as for humanity. Far from the ancient Near Eastern popular myth that the gods created us to serve them and to provide for them, here the Creator is providing for His creation. And humans were to assist God in continuing the creative ordering process that God undertook. We were to cultivate and to keep the earth, starting in Eden and presumably radiating out from there. The second task in Genesis 2.19, which wasn't read this morning, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Naming the creatures certainly meant more than just labeling them. I think uh, naming the creatures would have been, a, a, a lot of our sciences are doing what we were meant to do. Sciences that are meant to study plants, animals, uh, uh, astral systems. Taking a look at creation and understanding how it works and how its components come together. When God spoke the word that called each creature into existence, he was doing a great deal all at once. He was creating them from the smallest element, from the mitochondria within every cell of their body to their place in the ecosystem of the whole world. And Adam's first job as one who would rule over these creatures was to discover who these creatures were, how they were made, and what parts they played in their own herds, packs, gaggles, or swarms. What was their nature? What was their niche? Adam was to discover and to appreciate the genius and the character of God revealed in his handiwork, and he was to serve those creatures in God's name with that knowledge. You can't, you can't rule over creatures you don't understand or don't know. Now certainly, this is a significant part of the image of God, letting them rule, to recognize God's handiwork and to join him in supporting it. 
There's another aspect that comes into the creation account and that is directly related with the whole idea of God's image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Humankind cannot be fully known if one only considers its males or its females in isolation from each other. An important aspect of understanding humanity can only be understood as men and women together. Therefore, in the big picture, the image of God is revealed and expressed in humankind only when both genders operate in diversity and community together as those genders. The most potent expression of this aspect of the image of God in us is revealed in the community of marriage between a man and a woman. When a marriage relationship is faithfully kept, it is the most powerful image that we have of the Trinity, of how it could be possible that two separate individuals could be brought together by love and become a whole new individual, a unity together. It's not as complete as with the Trinity, but it gives us a picture. It is a wonderful revelation of the Trinity. It's also a terrific revelation of God's love for his church, of Christ's love for his church. Jesus loves his church as a man, as a groom loves his bride. Now this doesn't mean that the image is not revealed or expressed in a specific man or a particular woman. Each of us carries a piece of that image. And our relationship with God can be 100% complete. And, and, and the image of God can shine in us and through us with as much power as in, individually, as, with as much power as any couple or family. But it cannot be fully known without the union of diverse genders. So the image of God is tied up in this somehow. The next thing is the image of God <laughs> appears, I think, in the fact that we are empowered. What does empowered mean? Well, verse uh, 29, chapter 1, verse 29. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. So prior to the fall, Every plant's seed and every tree's fruit was designated and designed to be food for humankind and the beasts. Creation sustained itself without God's direct intervention. It's a paradox. It's two things happening once. God's sovereignty and our independence uh, the fact that we depend on him utterly, and yet he provides things like we could, in order to survive, we must find food and to eat. And, and in this way, creation sustains itself. And it does it without violence and without destructive exploitation in the original creation. It was designed by God to sustain itself with a measure of independence from him. A measure. Though the image bearers were sustained moment by moment by the will of their creator, there was a degree of separation given to them that is part 
of the image of God in us. Further, in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, God describes an important boundary that is also an important part of our empowerment as image bearers. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat you will surely die. This boundary God described was clearly experienced as a moral choice that presented itself every time Adam and Eve passed by the tree or experienced hunger. They were given the opportunity to choose. Moral choice is a significant part of this image of God. There, we are not independent of God, but there is a degree of independence that we have. And every time they walked by that tree and saw that it was beautiful and it was good for food, but that God had said that you're not to eat of it, and the only reason they weren't to eat of it is because God had reserved it as a boundary. That was the only reason. At that moment, they were able to choose. Will I be a friend of God? Will I uphold my loyalty to God? Or will I choose to believe that God knows that there's something that will make me happy, that he's holding out on, and he won't let me have, because that's just how he is. And that would be buying kind of into the ancient Near Eastern idea that God was trying to trip them up wasn't the case at all. God was giving them spiritual power, a level of independence to choose, will you or will you not love me? And every time they chose not to eat of that free tree, even if they were hungry, they were choosing to put their love for God over and above their hunger. And it was, love became a choice, and it was possible to love with that choice. This boundary that God described was clearly an experience as, experienced as a moral choice that presented itself every time they went by it or were hungry. And the moral alternatives that Genesis presents are that the image bearers could live in harmony with their creator or in rebellion against him. They could love him or not love him. There remains a mystery of what we would call independence, that coexists at the same time with the undeniable sovereignty of God. This paradox is part of our distinction as image bearers. And finally, the divine breath of life in chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. What we were made of was made out of nothing. The dust of the earth, the stuff of creation was made by God out of nothing. But the life that we have was not made out of nothing. It came from God himself. He infused himself. His life became our light and our life. The image of God is not hidden or besmirched or some way degraded by its association with matter, with dust and clay. A quality that still separates Christianity from nearly half of the world's religions or more. Indeed, the perfection of creation 
was seen in Jesus Christ when he took on flesh. The image of God is glorified in the flesh of sinless creation, not degraded. And this is a unique aspect of Judaism and Christianity. When a lifeguard or a first responder artificially resuscitates a body that has stopped breathing, the experience is extremely personal. It is not romantic. It is not affectionate. Sometimes, given the situation, it may be downright revolting. But whatever else it is or is not, it is profoundly intimate. My first teaching on artificial resuscitation, I think it was 11, 10, 11, at summer camp up in Canada. And in those, in those days, counted off by twos, and uh, one of you was the victim who was being resuscitated, and the other was the resuscitator. And each of you switched. And I'll tell you right now, I, I would still remember the feeling of having someone put their mouth over mine and lift my head up, plug my nose over my mouth, and breathe, not under my horsepower, to have breath come into me from another person. And I'll tell you, it's a lot of things, but it's not a feeling you can forget. A lot of things going through your head at the same time. But I remember that moment of camp. The thing is that it is unavoidably intimate. And this is the picture that God gives us of how he invested his life in us as a kiss. He came close enough not to speak words of creation. He came close enough to breathe into the very nostrils of Adam. Until that point, Adam was just a, an artfully designed statue, but God breathed into him like a kiss, the breath of life. It's very up close, very personal, and it's as intimate as it comes. This intimacy itself is a huge part of the image of God, the personal linkage of both our body and spirit to God's life and God's breath. The image of God is not a spiritual organ or a function, I don't think, since it isn't spelled out as one thing or another in particular. I believe it's best to see it as a whole group of characteristics unified by human personality, completed in relationship with its creator, and glorified when we fulfill our highest purpose, which is to join God in whatever he's doing. The fall of humanity into sin has obscured the image, but it hasn't eradicated it. It's added to the difficulty in understanding what that image is, but it is possible. As a matter of fact, I believe that it is probable that it the image of God was always meant to be a mystery to be discovered. Bit by unfolding bit, as we walked with our Father Creator and unraveled the secrets and the wonders of His creation, of the power and the goodness of His heart, glorifying Him, learning how to rule as His regents. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul remarks, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Who is the image of God? Jesus Christ. That image is in us, but the image is Jesus Christ himself. The Christian life is hidden with Christ in God. That is why we're a mystery to ourselves. We are a mystery to ourselves, and who we are meant to be is wrapped up with Christ in God. Just as the mystery of who we were to be was wrapped up in the womb of our mother when we were, when we were fetuses, the mystery of who we are becoming and what we will be is all wrapped up inside the person and the mind of God. And when Christ is revealed, we will be revealed. You and I were created to delight God and to be delighted by Him. If we want to find ourselves, if we want to find our place, if we want to find our joy and who we are, we must start by finding our Creator. We seek God in His people, who are also made in His image. We seek God in His Word, which is given to us as a gift by His Spirit. We seek God in personal prayer when God's Spirit meets with our spirit. And we seek God by honoring what we have discovered about His will and engaging in it. What He has revealed about Himself, we honor and we model our lives after. This is all the image of God. Whatever means God used to accomplish his creation, however he chose to establish life, to order the chaos, to join spirit and flesh, the revealed facts of divine revelation in the book of Genesis, God's word to us, are that his intelligence guided it at every step. He will, his will was the irresistible force that brought something out of nothing. And in humankind, God established a special link. And we'll spend our life and the next learning what that link is. The image has not been lost. You and I... We're special, not because of a quality we possess or that you possess on your own. You are special because God loves you and values you. There is still purpose and vision for our lives. Our value is based in what God thinks of us, and we can't add to that value. I can't build value with God. I have value because he has given me that value. It took me 54 years to figure out what that meant. It's not what you do. It's not what holds you up and holds you back. You have value because God loves you. If we want to join him in what he does and we find... We, the choice for us is whether or not we... Let God give us joy in that, in the fact that he values us. Is, is that enough? Is it enough that the creator of all the world, of time itself, 
values us. If, if that's not enough, folks, really, whatever you're doing with for your living isn't going to add a, a, a anything to it because it's just not that important. There's nothing we can do that will add value to who we are. God's already established that. It's, it's this potential that is just waiting for us to discover and live out and to find joy in. Sin has complicated everything in our birth and lives are full of pain and frustration and we are ruled by death for now. But if we join our lives to his and put our hand to the work that he is doing, we revitalize that link between us. It starts with trusting ourselves to Jesus as our Savior and our Creator, our Savior and our King. And it continues until we become kings and queens, priests and priestesses of his great love and his power. It continues until he comes again and gives death the taste of its own medicine. It continues until he has unmade all that he has made and resurrects it and those who trust in him into a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, and a whole new body. And until that time, we are hid in him with Christ. And when he appears, we will see who we have always been meant to become if we are yielded to God. And then it continues into a future that will have no end. What is the image of God? Well, in a name, the image of God is Jesus Christ. But our future is to be just like him. And if that sounds boring to you, if that sounds less boring than the thought of endless pleasures in heaven, then it's because what you know about Jesus came from someone else's life, not yours. And you need to find him on your own. And the kicker is this. You can beg him and plead with him to reveal himself to you in a way that gives life to your soul and to your spirit. And he'll let you stew in it. He, he, he can't be summoned. You can't just rub the Bible and have God appear out of it like a genie in a bottle. It's important to him to have a slinger in our hunger for him so that we know how hungry we really are, so that we appreciate it when he shows up. Call on him and then wait for him to show up. Call on him. If, if the thought of spending eternity with him and of seeing him face to face and having him bless you with his hand doesn't create a sense of expectation, and a peace in your heart to just think about it, then pray that God would make himself more real to you than the world around you here. And wait on him until he does, and how he does it will be unique as you are. I swear to you that he is the source of every good beginning, 
and the power and vision for every deed worth doing. But you can't know that unless you look for him, until you call on him to show himself to you, until you basically say, I can't hold up your side of the argument, Jesus. I can't go forward until you appear in my life to get me through this. That's being honest, and you wait on him until he shows up. Spend your time with his people, do what you need to do to wait, but the waiting and the process and the journey is every bit as important as the conclusion, which is his face. You and I are made in his image. We are destined for greatness if we will hand over our vision for our life in exchange for his.